I was talking with one of our minister's wives one day, and she mentioned the fact that her daughter's uh, boss, the CEO of the company, has a Mohawk haircut. And this minister's wife asked her, how could that be that someone in that high position would have a a Mohawk? And she said to her mother, she said, Mom, you know, today anything goes. And yes, indeed, today anything does go. In some ways, that can be helpful. Uh, Most of the time it's not. But, for example, there was a time back in the 60s where all the ladies had short dresses. And that's about all you could buy in the stores. You had to be a little bit creative. But today, you can see everything from short to all the way down to the ankles. It's helpful in that way. But in general, the anything-goes attitude is problematic. And it's human nature, to say the least. The Bible describes a similar time in past history found in the book of Judges. We're going to spend a little bit of time there. But in the 18th chapter, we, we often go to other scriptures that say something similar in Judges, but this is the first time that it mentions it here. And it makes a, a very simple statement that is profound. It's one of those statements we could read right over and not notice. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Now as in Sermon Out, we know that there were a long list of very bad kings, But nevertheless, it's making a statement here about government, about some sort of central authority, some sort of moral authority. This is also found in the 19th chapter. Just a chapter later, it says, It came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel, that there was a certain Levite. And it begins to tell a story about this particular Levite. We go back to the 17th chapter in verse 6. I said the first time with verse 18, chapter 18, but that's a little misstatement there. It says, in those days, Judges 17, verse 6, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's the result of no central moral authority. Everybody does that which is right in his own eyes. And so this sermon is about Anything Goes. That's the title, if, if anybody wants the title on it, Anything Goes. Anything Goes or Went at that time. Everyone did that which is right in his own eyes in Israel during the times of the judges. And what was the result of that? It was one of the most bloody, horrendous times in Israel's history. We find that Israel would have a savior, a judge that would come along, would bring them back into power and also into some sort of moral uh, uh, attitude there. Not very much, but a little bit. But God would give them a Savior. And they would then, after that, go right back into immoral behavior, continue down a very bad path until God sent another judge, another Savior for them. It was a bloody time in Israel's history. We have the story of the Levite's concubine, which we'll look at here a little bit more detail. We have Jephthah's foolish vow. We have Samson and all the problems he had with women. And we have a number of other instances as we go through the book of Judges of times where it was very bad, very bad decisions that people made and a lot of heartache, a lot of suffering that took place during that time. So today we're going to see that in a world where anything goes, in the living church of God, the anything goes attitude does not go. And we're going to see what it is that helps us to hold the line in a world where anything goes. Let's go back to Judges, the 19th chapter. And I'll read verse 1 again. It came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel that there was a certain Levite staying in the remote mountains of Ephraim. And he took for himself a concubine from Bethlehem and Judah. And his concubine played the harlot against him. Now in that moral vacuum that they had there, this was not unusual, uh, no doubt. 
she played the harlot against him. We live in a similar time today. We have a moral vacuum where people think that they can outvote God. If enough people are doing it, it must be okay. And so we've come to the place in our society where young people, but not just young people, older people as well, think that it's okay to have the privileges of marriage without the obligations of it. And the results are catastrophic in so many ways. We have disease, we have unwanted pregnancies, we have heartache, we have a breaking up of families time and again. And it isn't just in the world, it affects the church as well. It's a very sad state where when you see two people going together for any length of time, you almost assume that they're sleeping together. It's not always the case, but it's so often the case that you almost assume that that is the, the situation. Hopefully not in the church of God, but it does affect the church of God. And why it is that people think that just because everybody else is doing it, it must be okay, I don't know. But it must be the attitude that, well, we can outvote God. But can we? So here was a problem that he had. His concubine was playing the harlot. And she went back to her family home. Verse 3, Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. I think that's rather interesting, to speak kindly to her and bring her back, when we see the rest of the story here. Having a servant and a couple of donkeys with him, so she brought him into her father's house. And when the father of the young woman saw him, he was glad to meet him. Uh, you get the impression that he hadn't met him there before, that this was some, some introduction there to her, uh, his father-in-law. You see, it was not the way that things should be. His father-in-law, the young woman's father, detained him, and he stayed with him three days, so he, they ate and drank and lodged there. And so then we have the story of how every time he was ready to go, the father said, well, why don't you stay a little bit longer? Here, we got a meal ready for us, and so let's, let's have a meal. And then it got later in the day, and he was ready to leave, and he said, look, it's, it's, it's getting late in the day. Why don't you stay over, and, and we'll have something to eat and drink and enjoy ourselves and get to know each other better. And you can leave in the morning. But the next morning, he detained him. And so finally, after three days of this, the young man decided that it was time to go. Verse 10, however, the young man was not willing to spend that night, so he rose and departed and came to uh, opposite of Jebus, that is Jerusalem. So it was late in the afternoon that he came there, and his servant who was with him suggested that they could stay there, but he said, no, I, I don't want to stay at a, a Gentile city. Let's go on a little bit further and stay in a city of Israel, of the tribes of Israel. And so uh, they went on. And then they ended up in a place called uh, Gibeah. And they got there as the sun was going down, verse 14, and they turned aside uh, to lodge there. And uh, he went in and he sat down in the open square of the city for no one would take them into his house to spend the night. And so about that time, an old man came along, verse 16, from his work, and he invited him to stay with him. And he uh, really uh, pressured him in that sense to stay with him. He knew what kind of a city uh, he lived in and didn't want this man to stay outside in the open square. So they brought him in, and it says they ate and drank. And then verse 22, as they were enjoying themselves, suddenly certain men of the city, perverted men, surrounded the house and beat on the door. And they spoke to the master of the house, the old man, saying, Bring out the man who came to your house, that we may know him. And the New King James here says carnally, adding that word, because that's a sense of it. They wanted to know him in a carnal way. When it says he knew somebody, that's a, a euphemism for a more intimate relationship. Uh, it's used in the, the scriptures there. And so it was understood what it was. These were perverted men. These were homosexuals. They wanted to get to know this man, uh, some new individual that they wanted to get to know. And I, I may have mentioned this before, but my wife one time asked the question. We were going for a walk, and she was thinking of this and thinking of Sodom and Gomorrah and wondering, will we have a society that is like that, where roving gangs of men prey on other men? 
And that very thing happened when we were living in the United Kingdom uh, just uh, last year, within the last year. Uh, some of the refugees that had come out of the Middle East, um, uh, two or three of them, I don't remember the exact number, uh, did pray on somebody that was there locally. And when you read these things, it's easy to think, well, this could never happen in our society. But when you look at how our society has degenerated, how it has changed, there are many things in Scripture that just seem so far out. But if you look at history, how it's come down, let me give an example. Uh, when we read about uh, Sarah suggesting to Abraham that he could take Hagar to be a surrogate mother, as it were, that seemed pretty strange. But now we have many instances, maybe it's done more clinically, as it were, but nevertheless we have many surrogate mothers in our society today. And in fact, as uh, it happened there in uh, Ontario, they've passed a law that there can, uh, you may have read that already, there can be four parents on a birth certificate. Of course, they, they, they've also suggested that you, not I think suggested, it's, it's mandatory now, that they don't put gender, they don't put male or female, uh, unless the parents want it that way, but they, they can uh, leave that off. But you can have four parents, and that has to be arranged even before the child is conceived. And so here's a child, he's got four parents. Now, that's really exciting. You get to have four parents. I was watching a um, program when I was in, in Canada uh, that came on before our, our telecast, and I wanted to see what was on before, and it was something called SEED, S-E-E-D. I'd never seen it before, never heard of it before. And this was exactly the theme. I, I believe it was a Canadian program, uh, not, not uh, produced here in, in the U.S. But it, it was about a young girl who's in the principal's office at school, and she's got her parents there, and then she's got the sperm donor there, and she's got somebody else, a, a lesbian, who somehow came into play here. I really honestly don't know because I didn't watch it that long. I watched maybe ten minutes just to see what it was that was preceding our program. And I don't think that those people would be too interested in our program, anybody that would watch that. And I did happen to, to catch where there were two, these two women kissing on the lips. Uh, it, it was disgusting. But this is the world in which we live. This was unheard of 40 years ago. We could not imagine where we are today. When we read in the book of Revelation about sorcerers, the word is pharmakeia. And I know there was a time we thought, well, maybe that somebody shouldn't be a pharmacist. But in reality, when you look at it, it's talking about drugs. And when you look at our society, it probably has far more to do with drug abuse, the kind of recreational drugs that we have in our world today, than it has to do with legitimate uh, drug use for uh, the benefit of people who are sick. We have a world that is filled with drugs. That's not the world I was born into. And many of you, as I look out here, are my age, and you know that was not our world that we grew up in. When I went to high school, I would have no idea where to find even marijuana. But today, you can find that and a whole lot more. In fact, that's now legal. It's, it's, isn't it funny how we run away from smoking? You can't smoke any place without being fined. But you can smoke marijuana, which, which frankly is more dangerous, and for a number of reasons. And there are, you know, doctors that'll point that out. It's smoked at a higher temperature, and that creates problems for the little cilia and your cilia and and your lungs. And it's got all kinds of chemicals and all kinds of effects. But now we're on the bandwagon. Our society is that, you know, anything goes. Marijuana is fine. Don't smoke a cigarette, a regular cigarette, though, because that's awful and that's terrible and that's bad, which it is. But the, 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 the contrast where we say this one is wrong, but let's legalize this one, it just seems rather hypocritical, and it is. But nevertheless, these individuals were preying on this man, or they wanted to, and it says... In verse 24, the old man said, look, here is my virgin daughter and the man's concubine. Let, and let me bring the, uh, them out now. 
Humble them and do with them as you please, but to this man do not uh, do such a vile thing. In other words, he was a guest and there was a an approach at that time that you were responsible for anybody that came under your roof. But I guess your own daughter you weren't responsible for. It's a sick world. It was a sick world then. We have a sick world today. We say, well, that would never happen to us today. Well, I can't imagine how, but don't bet on it. So the men would not heed, and as it turned out, the uh, concubine was sent out to them, and uh, the men uh, abused her all night, this is verse 25, until morning. And when day began to break, they let her go. Then the woman came as the day was dawning and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was till it was light. Verse 27, when her master arose in the morning and opened the doors of the house and went out to go his way, there was his concubine fallen at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. And this fine, compassionate Levite said, get up and let us be going. You talk about calloused and hard. There was a woman that had been abused all night long. And in fact, as we see here, to the point of death, she died. And all he can think of is, let's get on the road. Let's be going. No compassion whatsoever. And there was no answer. So the man lifted her onto his donkey and the man got up and went to his place and then he quartered her, he chopped her up, and sent a piece to all the tribes of Israel. Now, even in this society, as bad as it is that we can see, I mean, it's bad enough what we've already seen, that was going too far. And so all of Israel gathered together to find out what happened. Verse 8 of chapter 20 the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent, nor will any turn back to his house. But now this is the thing which we will go, will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot. And so they cast lots, and they took every tenth person. And all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united together as one man. Verse 12, Then the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribes of Benjamin, saying, What is this wickedness that has occurred among you? Now, therefore, deliver up the men, the perverted men who are in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and remove this evil from Israel. So they recognized that that was an evil act, and they wanted to put an end to it. But what happens when a particular group, a tribe, a nation, has people who violate various laws? We circle the wagons, don't we? And we protect the perpetrators of crime. Someone goes over to another country, violates the laws of that land very clearly. Remember the case some years ago of the young man that went to Indonesia and spray-painted some graffiti on the walls, and of course that's a violation, and so they were they were going to cane him, hit him on the... On the backside, I guess, with a cane, a kind of a whip-like switch, a couple times. Apparently, very, very painful. And what what happened? Well, the government, the parents, everybody screamed and hollered, and uh, we didn't want that to happen to him, and it did. And he came back, and last I heard, sometime after that, he got back, he got in trouble back here in this country. You know, we, we protect the evil person, and that's what was happening here. That the Benjamites said, well, he, he's a Benjamite. No, you're not, or they are. We're not going to touch them. We're going to protect them. Even though they had committed murder and worse in the way that they committed it. And so the end result was that Benjamin and Israel went to war. There were 26,000 Benjamites. 26,700, actually, 700 left-handed ones uh, that uh, could uh, sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss. Verse 18, Then the children of Israel rose, and they went up to the house of God to inquire of God. 
And they said, Which of us shall go up first to battle against the children of Benjamin? And the Eternal said, Judah first. Now, there's a lesson in this for us. And I know that some of the old-timers are aware of this, but some of our newer people, some of our younger people may not fully understand what was going on here. They asked God. They asked for his advice. They said, which should go up first? And he said, Judah. So the children of Israel, verse 19, rose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to battle against Benjamin. And the men of Israel put themselves in battle array to fight against them at Gibeah. Then the children of Benjamin came out of Gibeah, and on that day cut down to the ground 22,000 men of the Israelites. Now here they had asked God's advice, and God gave them advice, and they went out, and they lost 22,000 men. What's going on here? What went wrong? Well, you see, they'd already made up their mind what they were going to do. They didn't want to know, shall we go up against our brother? What shall we do in this case? They had already decided they were going to go up against their brother. They just wanted to know which tribe should be number one in going up against them. It's a very subtle thing. But how often do we, as God's people, sometimes have the answer we're looking for, and then we go to God and ask his advice, but we've already decided what we want to do? Sometimes people... Uh, say, two young people, they, they fall in love. And everybody knows that this is not a good match, except them. And they'll say, well, we prayed about it, we fasted about it. But so often, the mind is made up. And the praying and the fasting is just to confirm what one has already decided. It's very difficult, isn't it? It's very difficult to go to God with an open mind, with a truly open mind, seeking God's advice, seeking what God wants and not what we want. Because even when we go to God, as was done here, if we've already made up our mind, then, you know, God said, okay, you want to know who goes up first? Judah goes. That's what you want? You want to go up against him? Send Judah first. Well, then the children of Benjamin came out. Well, we read that, verse 22. And the people, that is, the men of Israel, encouraged themselves and again formed the battle line at the place where they had put themselves in array on the first day. Then the children of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until evening and asked counsel of the Lord, saying, Shall I again draw near for battle against the children of my brother Benjamin? And the Eternal said, Go up against him. They're saying, shall we go up against him? And God said, sure, go up against him. What's the problem here? Well, notice they'd already set the battle lines in array as they had done the first day. Again, they still knew what they wanted to do. They had determined they were going to go up against their brother, but they, in order to get God's approval, they they asked God. It reminds me of... of, uh, how sometimes people come to a minister and they'll ask a question. And I, I've, I've been suckered by this. I don't know how many times over the years. Uh, I, I remember one young lady many, many years ago wanted to ask if she could uh, play in a, in a band concert on Friday night. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I was very young in the ministry, and I'm asking her questions about, well, what kind of music is it and this and that and everything else. And, and finally I said, well, well, what do you think? And she said, I don't think I should. And, you know, boom, I realized she was looking for papal dispensation. She already knew what the right answer was, but she was just looking for me to give her permission. And in a way, that's what's happening here. These people already decided what they wanted to do, the Israelites, but they want to go to God and see if God will give special permission to do what they already want. They want God to confirm what they've already decided. So the children of Israel approached the children of Benjamin on the second day, and Benjamin went out and cut down 18,000 more. So they've lost 40,000 in two days. That's a lot of lives lost, a lot of young lives, a lot of husbands, a lot of brothers, a lot of potential husbands, a lot of fathers that were cut down, 40,000. All these drew the sword. 
Now, finally, verse 26, all the children of Israel, that is, all the people went up, and they came to the house of God and wept. And they sat there before the Eternal and fasted that day until evening. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Eternal. And then it shows that they, they asked the right question or questions. Verse 28, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, stood before the, the ark there in those days, uh, saying, Shall I yet again go out to battle against the children of my brother Benjamin, or shall I cease? And the Eternal said, Go up, for tomorrow I will deliver them into your hand. They finally came to God with an open mind of wanting to know what, what God's will was, was in this. And, you know, that's a very difficult thing for, for any of us to, to really go to God in such a way that we want to know what His will truly is, not have Him just put His stamp of approval on what we want. And when they did, the end result was that they were victorious in this battle against Benjamin. In fact, by this time, after losing 40,000 of their brothers and, and uh, friends and relatives and so forth, uh, they, they went to an extreme. And they just about wiped out the entire tribe of Benjamin. And only about 600 of the men survived. But they killed men, women, children, just about destroyed the entire tribe. Chapter 21. Now the men of Israel had sworn an oath at Mizpah, saying, None of us shall give his daughter to Benjamin as a wife. So the people came to the house of God and remained there before God till evening. They lifted up their voices and wept bitterly and said, O eternal God of Israel, why has this come to pass in Israel, that today there should be one tribe missing in Israel? Well, you know, they had a little bit to say about all that, didn't they? So it was on the next morning that the people rose early and built an altar there and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And they tried to figure out, how do we solve this problem? Because there are 600 men there. They don't have wives. And if they don't have wives, then this tribe is going to cease to exist on the face of the earth. And so they, they searched around to find out who had not gone up to uh, fight against them because all the ones who had gone up had made a, a, a vow that they would not give their daughters to any of these Benjamites. And they found that there was one city that didn't go up, uh, Jabesh Gilead. And so they, they went out and they destroyed Jabesh Gilead. But they preserved 400 women who had not known men intimately, and they gave those women to the Benjamites. It's a rather incredible thing when you think about it, but this is what happens when anything goes. When everybody is a law unto himself, when they reject God, they come up with solutions that are not very good solutions. I guess this was a solution. Uh, they had to do something, I suppose, but... To get themselves into this place, what a mess. So they gave these 400 uh, young virgins to the, the men, but they're still missing 200. And so what to do? Well, they concocted another scheme, and all of you young fellows need to listen very carefully, and you young ladies, because there's, there's an important lesson here for each of you. There was a, a festival every year at Shiloh. And it was near the vineyards, and so they came up with this scheme, at least some of the leaders did, apparently. Not everybody was in on what was going to happen. They, uh, they told the, the Benjamites, the 200 Benjamites, that hide out in the, the vineyards, and when the young ladies come out and dance, run out and grab one and take them home. Throw them over your shoulder and take them home like a caveman. And that way... The, the, the daughters or the fathers of these girls could literally say that they hadn't given them to them. And so they would be free of their, their oath. So there's a lesson here for our young fellows and young ladies. Fellows, if you need a wife and can't get any, one any other way, hide out in a vineyard near where there's a dance going on. And young ladies don't dance if there's a vineyard close by. <laughs> Well, it was quite a, quite a scene, wasn't it? The end result was that Benjamin did survive. And in verse 25, the very last verse 
of the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is a lesson. Everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes. You see, there was no central authority. There was no order in that way. Everybody just did whatever he thought was right in his own eyes, and the end result was this horrendous time in ancient Israel. Now, real faith and trust in God flies in the face of our current anything-goes society and culture. In Deuteronomy, the 12th chapter, in verse 8, Deuteronomy 12, Moses instructed the people, or God did through Moses, in verse 8, it says, You shall not at all do as you are doing here today, every man doing what is right in his own eyes. Everyone doing what is right in his own eyes. And, you know, that's, a, that's what uh, we're counseled to do, isn't it? We're counseled all the time on doing our own thing. There's a, a good commentary. Actually, it was a couple days ago by uh, Mr. Roger Meyer. It's on the website, and it begins this way. In movies and songs, and as advice from actors, singers, and celebrities, we often hear the messages, follow your heart and trust your feelings. Some extol the supposed virtues of listening to their inner sixth sense or their psychic intuition. Does the fact that we feel something make it so? Is it generally a good idea to trust our feelings, or is doing so fraught with danger? If anyone has ever attended a high school graduation ceremony, at least one person will stand up and say, follow your dreams, don't let anybody tell you what you can't do, just follow your dreams, follow your heart. We even find that in a religious sense. I remember talking to a, a gentleman who attended services uh, for a short time in one of our congregations, and he says that God just speaks my heart. God just speaks my heart. That's, that's how I know what's right and what's wrong. And, and so I went over to Hebrews, the eighth chapter, and the idea was that God's Spirit just spoke to him, and that's how he knew what was right. And as I, I pointed out here, that the law of God is still in effect, and the law of God is what shows us what is right and what is wrong. Hebrews, the eighth chapter, it says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Eternal. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. You see, God writes it in our minds. We academically understand something, first of all, and then the heart follows. We do what's right because we know it's right, and after a while, we find that that's what our heart wants to do. Now, I know a, a couple chapters later it reverses that order, but the point is that it has to be in the mind as well as the heart. We don't just follow what the heart says. We also follow what the mind is able to properly discern from the Scriptures. He says, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. So it is God's laws, not our own laws or whatever we think is right. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. So we find that to follow our heart, uh, apart from... God's law is, is fraught with many dangers. There are some scriptures that we kind of cut our teeth on years ago. Uh, I don't know that we hear about them as much as we did because they're, they're memorization scriptures and we, we kind of take them for granted that everybody knows them. But in Proverbs 14, 12, it says, There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. That's the old King James. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Mr. Meyer's commentary brings that out very clearly, that we can feel something like this is right, but the end result is not so good. We wake up sometimes thinking, well, how did I get here? 
How did I end up here? Well, those are the decisions that we made. This is so important. It's repeated in the 16th chapter in verse 25 of Proverbs. There's a way that seemed right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death, or the end is, uh, ends in death. Uh, you can read the New King James, but uh, either way, the meaning is the same. It seems good. It looks right, but the end result is not. Now, a scripture that we, uh, well, let's turn over to Proverbs 28, first of all, 28 and verse 26. It says, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but whoever walks wisely will be delivered. I, I saw on uh, one of these uh, uh, Prager University uh, little shorts that they have, uh, is it Mike Rowe, the fellow that does all the dirty jobs? And, and he talks about how he wanted to be, I think, was a carpenter growing up. And he, he tried it and everything. He tried to do all this woodcraft. And finally his uncle told him, he said, uh, son, this is not you. You may want to do it. You may think this is what you want to do, but you're no good at it. Now, how many times do you see where today we have people, you can watch uh, any of these uh, talent shows, uh, American Idol or uh, America's Got Talent or Britain has talent or any of those, and you'll find that there are people that get up there and make a fool of themselves, but they think they can sing or they can do some particular act, whatever it might be. And judges who know something about the subject will tell them that they're no good, and they will argue with the judges and go off and follow their dream because they know this is what they want to do. Not everybody can do it. How many people have been told, you can grow up to be president someday? Well, there were 16 Republican candidates who found out they couldn't be. <laughs> and a couple Democratic candidates, right? A lot of people that have the dream of that, I, I think that we would have to say that Mrs. Clinton has had that dream for a long time. And her husband for her as well. And her daughter probably cheering her on. Great disappointment. How many men, how many women have thought they could be something, but they can't be? You know, we, we have to, to understand that it's not what we want, but it's what God wants. And we find out sometimes what we're able to do with good counsel from other people. In Jeremiah 17.9, we're all familiar with that, are we not? There's a, it says... Um, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? How many times have we thought that something was the right thing to do only to find out how wrong we were later? You know, the Ten Commandments, I heard this explained by one of our, our men at uh, summer camp back in Worldwide Days. He, he pointed out very clearly, the Ten Commandments are there to show us how to make right decisions. Because there's, there's a time in life when any one of those Ten Commandments, the violation of it, could seem like the thing to do. You shall not commit adultery. There are times in people's lives when they get into a situation where they might think that that's the thing to do. What was the old song that, that went, uh, how can it be wrong when it seems so right, or something along that line? There are times when something is going to look good. Stealing can look good under certain circumstances. It may not right now as you sit here, but there are times where maybe cheating on income tax or something else, when it might seem like the thing to do, but it's not. And in anything goes society, we have people who think that they don't have to pay taxes. We've actually had people who attended our services I know at least one case who went to jail because he believed that you don't have to pay taxes. Now, they have all kinds of arguments. I've heard some of them. I'm sure I haven't heard all the arguments. But what is money? They get into definitions of money. They get into all kinds of things. But what did Jesus say? Render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. We don't have to, to wonder about that. And, and behind the attitude 
of not wanting to pay taxes, it's not a, it's not a noble cause. It's a cause of, I don't want to give anybody, I don't want to, you know, pay them my money. I want to keep it. It's coveting. That's what's behind it. Now, no one will admit that if they're caught up in that. But nevertheless, that's what's really behind it. In Jeremiah, the 10th chapter, uh, you might hear me refer to this from time to time, because I think it's one of the most profound passages in the Bible. Here's Jeremiah the prophet, and he says in verse 23, Jeremiah 10:23, O eternal, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. Now, Jeremiah could say that. Do we understand that to the very heart and core of our, our being? And though, then he goes on to say something that is so difficult for us as human beings to pray. He says, O eternal, correct me, but with justice. O eternal, correct me. Not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. So do we pray that prayer? Do we ever pray that prayer? That's one prayer that God usually answers pretty quickly. You pray that prayer and then you find yourself doing something really dumb. Uh, not too long afterward, and you realize that, okay, that's correction. Now, what we ought to pray is that, that God will use His Word to correct us, that we'll be easily corrected. You know, some, some children are easily corrected. You just, you look at them a certain way and they break out crying. Not putting on, but they, they really, they really are broken up. Others, no matter how many times you spank them, they just don't get the point. We ought to ask that God would correct us easily, that we'd have a tender heart, that we not have to be so hardened that God has to put some terrible sore trial upon us. We ought to want God to be able to correct us and be able to be easily corrected. There are people that you know, you can correct them time and time again and they never get the point. And others, you, you tell them one time and they get the point. We have a choice which way we're going to be. But we should ask for God from time to time to correct us, but with justice, not in his anger, lest you bring me to nothing. I remember a young fellow one time said, I'm ready. God, give it to me. I don't know what ever happened after that, but I'm thinking, oh, boy, don't do that. I think I told him, please don't say that. Because God can, God hears. God hears and he'll answer. We're admonished to put our trust in God and not ourselves over in Proverbs 3. This is a scripture that is well known. I think that even the, the kids uh, that were in the class, I think this is one of the passages that they, they were to learn but in Proverbs 3, verse 5, it says, Trust in the eternal with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Such a powerful passage. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the eternal and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. In Romans, the 12th chapter, Romans 12, verse 16. A lot of wise counsel in the Word of God about not putting our trust in ourselves, but trusting God. Proverbs 12, verse 16. says, Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Don't be wise in your own opinion. I remember having to read a scripture to someone I was near and dear to, although I haven't had much contact with with uh, this individual for some time because this individual's always right, and everybody else is wrong. You don't agree, you're not converted. And as I, I read to him, Proverbs 18, verses 1 and 2, a man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. A fool has no delight in understanding, but in expressing his own heart. You know, 
there are people who are so sure that they're right, they may be the only person in the world that believes that way, but they're sure that they're right. When everybody else believes something else, especially when it's in the church or in the ministry or whatever, then maybe we should at least ask the question, maybe I could be wrong. Just maybe I could be wrong. In Philippians 2, verse 2, Philippians 2, And verse 2, it says, Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. So we are to be of one accord of one mind. We ought to be able to see things, for the most part, in the same way in the church of God. It says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. And that's the problem that we run into or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Now, what does it mean to esteem others better than himself? Well, the next verse really clarifies it. It says, let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. That your needs are are more important than my needs right now. That's the attitude that we ought to have. You are more important at the moment than, than just what I want. Have you ever noticed that it's never convenient to, to help somebody out. They always catch you at the most difficult time. And so you, you even say that. People say that. Well, boy, why now? Why now? It's never convenient because we're all busy. And when we're all busy and some problem comes up, we hate to set down what we're doing and go and help someone else. It's never convenient. I say never convenient. It's never convenient if you're doing anything. But even if you're doing nothing, you might have to put Facebook down or Twitter or something else and, and go help somebody else or miss half the television program that you're watching. It's not always convenient to help others. But let each of you look out uh, not only for his own interest but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Now, I'd have to believe that when Christ got to a certain age there and he knew that the end was coming, he might have liked to have lived a little bit longer. I mean, humanly speaking. I'm sure he was anxious to get back to where he once was. But we all want to hang on a little bit, don't we? But he was willing, even though he agonized in the garden there. Nevertheless, he was willing to put our interest above his. Wow. It's pretty, pretty profound when you think about it. These are all familiar scriptures, but we have to be careful that we're not dull of hearing. Uh, You can read how uh, in Isaiah 6, verses 8 to 13, about those who are dull of hearing and have eyes to see but don't see and ears to hear and don't hear. But let's go to 2 Timothy, the fourth chapter. 2 Timothy 4, and verses 1 through 4. It says, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Now, here is the young evangelist Timothy, and he's told to convince, to rebuke, to exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, They will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Now, we are living in a time such as that. We have all kinds of people out there with all kinds of ideas, and people have itching ears. They want to hear something new. I could refer back to Mr. Wahavich's sermon that he gave here, and if you are missing, you might want to get that um, out of the library uh, or be on the website, I'm sure at some point in time, about the milk and the meat of the word. There are those who who want to hear something new, and they consider anything new as the meat of the word, when it's not at all. 
And so Paul was telling young Timothy there that the time would come when people would not listen, when everybody, in essence, would want to do their own thing in so many words. We could go back to Isaiah, the 30th chapter. It was prophesied for Israel. Isaiah 30, verse 8. He says, Go write it before them on a tablet and note it on a scroll that for time to come forever and ever. Verse 9, Isaiah 30, verse 9. That this is a rebellious people, lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord, who say to the seers, Do not see, and to the prophets, Do not prophesy to us right things, speak to us smooth things, prophesy deceits. Get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. Now, that's our world today. And sadly, it affects people who are a part of the church of God. In Acts, the 20th chapter, Acts 20, important point that I'd like to make here. Acts 20 will begin in verse 25. The Apostle Paul is talking to the elders at Ephesus. They had come out to meet him, so they didn't have to go to Ephesus itself. He was in a hurry, wanted to get back to Jerusalem. And he says here that, um, Indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you. In other words, he thought maybe this was the last time he'd see them. I testify to you that uh, this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Now, this is something that, that Dr. Meredith has pointed out a number of times over the years. I, it, it's funny how you can be in the church for years and never quite see something, and all the years I was in Worldwide, I never really focused on this, the whole counsel of God. But after Worldwide went into... Uh, uh, rebellion against the law of God and, and everything. And coming out of that, this became very important because we had groups going every which direction. And the whole counsel of God is important because some have this little bit of truth, some have that bit of truth, but it's the whole counsel of God. We have to have the whole thing, not perfectly, no one does, but we have striven in the church of God to have the living church of God, to have the whole counsel of God, as Paul said there. Verse 28, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. To shepherd the church of God. Now, there is a, a loving relationship between the shepherd and the sheep. Yes, there is a shepherd that has to lead the sheep, but it is a loving relationship, a caring relationship, going after the one that is lost, caring for them. There are people who have raised sheep can tell you all the stories of how you have to, they're, they're high maintenance. You have to take good care of them. And that's important for those in ministerial positions to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Paul understood that. When you look at the, the church in the early years, he was only in an area a very short period of time, relatively speaking. Uh, it was a, three years, I guess he was at Ephesus, something like that, three and a half, as we read here. Uh, for three years he was there. But that's a relatively short period of time, and he was having to ordain elders or having someone that he had trained to ordain elders in every city, some of which there was only a short period of time that they had been there. And so you had a lot of people going all different directions. There was not the, the, the communication that we have today, and so it would be very easy for a group to go in a wrong direction. And he said, I know that after my departure, savage wolves are going to come in. He says, also from among yourselves men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. 
Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Now, the point I want to make about all this is very simple. Do we think for an instant that the people who led people astray suddenly got away from the Sabbath and holy days immediately? I don't think so. But there's an attitude, I think, that sometimes exists in those that came out of worldwide, that as long as they keep the Sabbath and the holy days, it's okay. But there are people who keep the Sabbath and the holy days who are nothing but wolves, barely in sheep's clothing. There are those who abuse the sheep, who teach all kinds of perverse things that are not to be taught, especially those that seem to claim the most that they want to follow Mr. Armstrong. I could only imagine what Mr. Armstrong would do if he were back hearing some of the things from these individuals. But somehow people think if you keep the Sabbath and the holy days, it must be okay. It's not. I'm not saying that there aren't God's people in some other groups. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that just because somebody keeps the Sabbath and the holy days, don't be fooled by it. Paul spoke of the whole counsel of God. And these individuals who rose up amongst them or those coming in from the outside, some cases they were keeping, if, if you really look at Colossians, they were, they were keeping them more strictly than what God intended. They were ascetics. They were, you know, they had different ideas about how things were to be done. Now, the anything-goes attitude rejects sound understanding. So how does the body of Christ stay on track? How, how do we? Because we're here together, aren't we? And we want to be on track. So how do we stay on track? Well, 1 Timothy 3, verse 15, 1 Timothy 3, verse I'll begin in verse 14. It says, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write to you that you may know how you, this is Paul talking to the young evangelist Timothy, how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. So he's talking about how he was to conduct himself. What is appropriate behavior in the church of God? What is proper conduct? What is proper, you know, decorum? Uh, how things are to be done. He says, and I, I write to you these things, and he gives him all kinds of instructions, including, um, well, you go back to chapter 2, verse 9, in like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, not that those things are wrong of themselves, but, it, you know, the Hollywood approach of just outlandish stuff, I mean, you, it says uh, modest apparel, so you have to have apparel. Uh, you have to wear something. But the idea that, uh, you know, you, 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 the focus is on the outward appearance instead of the inward appearance, uh, that which is, is modest and not lust arousing and this sort of thing. So he says that you know how to conduct yourself in the house of God, this is verse 15, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground or bulwark of the truth. This is what holds up the truth. Now, it is the church of God that is going to uphold the truth. It is the church of God that's going to teach us the truth. But, of course, we've got to know where the church of God is. That's the first thing. You know, when I came out of Worldwide, I was... I'm just happy to be back with, quote, the truth in a broad sense. And it took some time to, to realize, really realize how far we had drifted. We drifted a long way in a short period of time. And it was through Dr. Meredith and Carl McNair and various other ones that helped, to, in a sense, bring us back to where we should be. Because what I noticed is that some other groups out there didn't have that strong foundation. They were still trying to sort things out. As one person said that, when I, I mentioned about the um, 
that we need to have more than just the Sabbath and the holy days. And he said, oh, that'd be a huge mistake. We need to get everybody together first, and then we'll sort those things out. And so you had people that were scattered somewhere between the time of Mr. Armstrong's death in 1995, approximately, and then it's gone from there. But they, they, they had different parts of the apostasy that they may have accepted. And it was through the leadership of the global church of God that it really brought us back to a sound foundation once again. And we need to be so thankful for that. But the church of the living God is a pillar and the ground of the truth. You could go over to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter. And here the Apostle Paul is talking about something so mundane, in a sense, as hair lengths. And he, he speaks here in verse 2. He says, I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. And then he talks about how the head of, of, uh, of every man is Christ and the head of woman is man and the head of Christ is God. So there's a relationship there. There's, that's a very important thing that in our modern world we've lost sight of that. We've lost sight of the relationship between men and women. And we can go to extremes in all of that. Uh, you, you can go from an abusive relationship to loving leadership that God has given to the man to, to take in the household. And he starts talking about hair lengths and how some women are, uh, you know, it, it's not appropriately long, long enough to be able to discern that this person is a woman from behind. Uh, and, and, he, and he points out that a woman should have long hair. And then he shows that a man, if he has long hair, it's a shame to him. And he says, verse 16, But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Somebody wants to argue about it, we're just simply not going to argue about it, he says. There are things like that. There are traditions. There's understanding. And we trust that Christ is able to lead his ministry. And we know that because his ministry is human, it's not going to be perfect. It won't be perfect. Never will be in this physical flesh. But there's safety there. There's safety when we, we stick with what's where we should be. Now, when it goes off track and is against Scripture, then we don't have to worry. We can see that pretty quick, and we recognize that. But we're talking about things that are what we might call gray areas, and we have to be careful as ministers not to try to rule in gray areas in the wrong way, but we need to understand that uh, we have to, to make decisions. We have to give guidance. In Ephesians, the fourth chapter, we have a passage of Scripture here that I've brought up to a number of people over the years, especially when you get into these discussions about church government. And I, I've never had anybody explain it away. They just go off to some, some other place. But notice Ephesians 4 and verse 11. It says, He gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Now, why did He give us uh, these uh, individuals or individuals with those designations for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying, the building up of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we can come to that stature of Christ, the fullness of Christ, that we no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. That we can strive to follow the example of Christ. From whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working, by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. God has given us a ministry. This is really kind of coming to the bottom line of it. He's given us a ministry really for the purpose 
of keeping us on track. Um, we're not to do just anything that we think. The ministry is not here to run people's lives. We're not here to micromanage what everybody does. But he does give the ministry to give broad recommendations and sometimes specific things, as Paul was talking about hair lengths there, pretty specific, you know, shaved, shorn, uh, etc. He's talking about certain things. And he does give the ministry to try to keep us all unified. But in our world today, we are living under a, a regime of do your own thing. Don't let anybody tell you what to do. Just follow your own heart. And that's the most dangerous thing that any one of us can do. We need to understand that there's God the Father in Jesus Christ and wherever his church is, and that's something we have to prove for ourselves, he's going to guide his church through Christ who is the head of the church. And he's going to help us to see the right way to live and to grow because this is a continually growing situation. We don't just get baptized and then, okay, now whatever I think is okay. We have to understand that there's growth and it takes place over many, many years. I've been here now, I guess, in the church over 50 years. And, you know, I, I realize there's a lot of growth yet to come. And I'd probably grow more if I knew exactly what I had to grow up, but God knows I already know enough that I'm not doing. You know, just being focused. Uh, you know, not wasting time. There are all kinds of things that I know that I've got to change already. But sometimes we just have to cry out to God and say, correct me, show me what I need to do. We live today in an anything-goes world. It's a lawless attitude where each man is a law unto himself. Yet God's way is a way of unity, of working together, you know, moving forward together for a common cause and a common way of, of doing things. And the focus of our lives is not to be one of self-expression, of just wanting to express ourselves because this is who I want to be or this is what I, what I think I am. But it's a life of character development, of serving, of sharing, and of exalting or putting the needs of others before our own. And when we concentrate on the right areas, then we are going to be unified. We are going to have the love that, that we should have. And we're going to be pleasing to God. So, brethren, in a world where anything goes, the anything goes attitude does not go in the living church of God.